The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Verses 14 through 20. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Way to go, Jonah. Thanks, buddy. Good morning, everybody. Uh, and uh, it is my privilege to uh, get to explain or try to explain what was just read to us from the Word of God, and uh, I'll start this way. Uh, there's a curious thing, you probably noticed it if you've ever been to a funeral or a memorial service where uh, it's just instinctive uh, for people who have faith and also even for those who don't have faith in God or even in an afterlife to just instinctively say, well, I'm comforted to know that he is in a better place now. Or I'm comforted to know that I will see her again on the other side. It's just instinctive for any kind of person with any kind of faith commitment or lack thereof to say those kinds of words at or around funerals and memorial services. There was, there was actually an interview that uh, NPR's Terry Gross did with an atheist named Maurice Sendak, who you may know as a children's book illustrator and author. And in the interview, he said this about his own deceased brother. He said, it makes me cry when people I love go before me and life is emptied. I don't believe in an afterlife, but I still fully expect to see my brother again. I don't believe in an afterlife, but I still fully expect to see my brother again. Where does that come from? That instinct in us that rejects the idea that life really does end. Of course, the Bible has an explanation for this. We are built to last. God did not create human beings to perish. He created us to live forever. And so, as, as uh, Nate Tasker's already told us, the subject of our series, which this is the last of three messages, started on Easter a couple of weeks ago, the subject of our series is the bodily resurrection of Jesus in time-space history and why it matters. And what I want to encourage us today with is this. The bodily resurrection of Jesus in time-space history is every Christian's assurance that that feeling we get, that death is wrong, in fact, that death isn't even true in the grand scheme of things, 
That feeling is made fact by the resurrection of Jesus, not just for Jesus, but for every one of us who puts our trust in him. So there are two things I want to talk about today, two points. Where would we be without resurrection, and where are we with resurrection? So where would we be without resurrection? The Apostle Paul here is very blunt about that. He says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we Christians are of all people the most to be pitied. We're the most pitiful people in the world if Christ did not actually bodily, historically rise from the dead on the third day. And there are two haunting reasons why we would be pitiful people if Christ has not risen. One is that our faith would be futile, to use, to use Paul's words. Our faith would be futile. In other words, it would be empty. It would be meaningless. Our faith would be a waste. Why? Because on the one hand, the way of Jesus is in and of itself beautiful. Dostoevsky, the famous Russian novelist, uh, wrote a letter to the woman who gave him his first copy of the New Testament. And he strangely said these words to her. Nothing is more beautiful, profound, sympathetic, reasonable, manly, and more perfect than Christ. And if someone proved to me that Christ is outside of the truth, that if this isn't true, if somebody were to prove to me that this is not true, then I would prefer to remain with Christ rather than with the truth. I'm not sure that Paul would agree with that statement. In fact, we know that Paul would take issue with that statement, but at the same time, there are significant kernels of truth in what Dostoevsky is saying. Part of why Christians cherish Jesus Christ so much is that he is beautiful. He loves like no other. He forgives like no other. He restores like no other. He shows up like no other. He's kind. And the degree to which somebody or a community follows him is the degree to which that person or that community becomes beautiful and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy to the world around them. You know, Acts chapter 2 talks about those who had anchored their lives into following Christ together were enjoying the favor of all the people. Their neighbors liked them and wanted to be like them because they lived according to the Beatitudes, a humble, beautiful life. They lived, as Jesus said, like salt, uh, like the salt of the earth or like the light of the world or like the city on a hill. Let your beautiful works shine before men so they, they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so there's a beauty to the way of Jesus. But So why would the faith be futile even if it wasn't true? Because it's also very costly. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which I believe he wrote from prison, 
He said, when Jesus Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And he's just, he's just echoing what Jesus Christ himself said. If anyone would come after me, that person must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, which is a symbol of, of, of death, a symbol of giving up, a symbol of surrender, take up a cross daily and follow me. And follow me. Now, let's just take the writer of our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul. Ever since he was converted to Jesus Christ, he has experienced incalculable loss as a direct result of becoming a Christian. He's lost power and prestige that, he's had, that he had before he became a Christian as, as an ascending celebrity rabbi in the Jewish community. He's lost that power and that prestige. He's lost countless numbers of friends, including friends that he's had ever since his childhood. He talks about this in, in the book of Romans where he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart about my brothers and sisters who have rejected me and renounced me because I now follow Jesus Christ. He's lost stability. He, he now lives the life of an itinerant preacher who is completely dependent on the benevolence of other people in order for his life to be sustained and his ministry to move forward and, and for him to, to be able to eat and have shelter and clothing. He's lost safety and comfort. You know, he writes in 2 Corinthians 4 how, how he's hard-pressed how he's perplexed and persecuted and struck down, or in Romans 8, how he faces death all day long because of the violence that, that, that was perpetrated against Christians, especially Christian leaders like himself in ancient Rome. He's lost all kinds of things. And he said, but all these things are like light and momentary afflictions in comparison to the weight of glory, in comparison to what the resurrection means for my future. All these things are light and momentary in comparison to what lies ahead. But, but if, if he's believing in a fantasy, if Christianity, as Karl Marx once famously said, is just an opiate for the masses, something to, to medicate yourself with, something to drug yourself with so, so that you can deal with and face life's tragedies, is it really worth it? But even if we don't share... Paul's hurts, right? Most of us live in a relative degree of suburban comfort. And so th these kinds of, of hardships that Paul's describing about himself, they, they don't necessarily connect with our reality, but even if we don't share his hurts, every one of us is going to die at some point. Every, every one of us is going to bury somebody that we love and or be buried by people that we love. And between now and then, every Christian is also called upon by Christ to love their enemies, to forgive those who injure them, to be conservative with their bodies in the bedroom, 
to be promiscuous with their money through generosity, to be promiscuous with their time by giving up a full day of, we, uh, of the week to worship and rest, by giving up the equivalent of roughly a full hour of the day to, to be fully present with Jesus Christ, and to give up all kinds of time and resources and energy in order to serve their neighbors and their communities and the causes and purposes of God in the world. There's something to give up to follow this path. And so, so N.T. Wright says, without hope of resurrection, if this is all there is, surely it would be better to throw in the towel to admit that many other philosophies will give you an easier life and to stop wasting your time. So that's the first travesty is our faith would be futile if the resurrection didn't actually happen. But we would also still be in our sins, Paul says. In other words, we would have no way to deal with our guilt in any meaningful or sustainable way. The Swiss doctor Paul Tournier said this, that a guilty conscience is the seasoning of our daily life. A guilty conscience is the seasoning of our daily life life. I experience this on, on a fairly regular basis. This, this, is how, this is how guilt tries to jab at me. You know, I, one occupational hazard of, of, of what I do is that I say things in public. And because I'm a flawed person, every now and then I will say things in public that I regret saying, either because they were off base or inappropriate, or could easily be misunderstood or misinterpreted by one or more people in the group through their own interpretive grids and filters. So I've got to be really, really careful with my words, and that's something that the Bible actually calls me to as a preacher of the gospel, to be very careful with my words. But I've found myself every now and then over the years just spontaneously walking alone, you know, going up to the shower or getting dressed for the day, and the words will come out of my mouth, you idiot. And I'm speaking to myself in reference to something that I said publicly that I feel embarrassed by. Not long ago, I said you idiot to myself about something I said over 30 years ago. We're talking about stuff that doesn't leave us without resurrection, without the hope of the gospel that comes from it, namely our guilt. You know, one famous therapist said this, there's only one way out of guilt, and that is enoughness. At some point, we need to just say, I am enough. I am enough, and I am worthy of belonging and of love and of joy. You get this picture of Stuart Smalley from the Saturday Night Live skits. Some of you aren't old enough to remember those. It's a Chris Farley character, and you know he would beat himself up for doing or saying something stupid, stupid, stupid. No, no, no. Wait, that's Chris. That's a different one. Um, I'm sorry. It wasn't Chris Farley. It was some other guy. But 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 his mantra to address his own insecurity and guilt and shame was, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and people like me. But the problem was he wasn't good enough and he wasn't smart enough and people didn't like him. 
And so our enoughness is not enough to carry us through our guilt. You know, on the one hand, it is a true statement that that concerning our value, we are enough. We are created in the image of God. We are identified in the eighth Psalm as the crown of God's creation. We are of infinite, inestimable value on the one hand. On the other hand, we aren't enough. We can't be enough. We will never be enough concerning virtue in and of ourselves. You know, as Romans 3, 23 tells us, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, Lady Macbeth in uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth, there's this tragic scene where she's, she's anxiously scrubbing her hands to, to get rid of invisible blood, invisible blood. And she's saying, out, damned spot, out, damned spot. And, and it's, it's tragic because the blood she's trying to get off of her hands is not visible. It, it's the blood on her conscience. It, it's, it's the blood of, of, of shame that, that, that's running through her entire system because of regrettable things that she's thought, said, and done. It won't come out. That invisible blood will never go away if we try to get rid of it ourselves. There there are two kinds of people. There are the kinds of people who concede that Romans 3.23 is true of them, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that I am contaminated with guilt and shame, and therefore I have a need for a source outside of myself to get rid of of the invisible blood that I cannot get rid of myself. And then the other group of people are those who will not concede that, but who will instead say, I am enough. I am enough. And, and what, what you have to do if that's your posture is you have, to, you have to compensate for your guilt. You'll never get rid of the invisible blood of guilt and shame, but you have to compensate for it, and you'll do it by one or more of these ways. You'll either shift blame, the problem with the world is always somebody else. The fault is is not in ourselves, but in our stars. Or you will make excuses. If somebody else says something untrue, they're a liar, but if you say something untrue, well, it's complicated. Or you'll close your heart to any kind of even constructive, helpful, healthy critique that might come your way. You'll close your heart to it entirely. You'll always be living on the defense emotionally. You'll resort to gossip because that's one strategy to help you feel better about you, is that gossip is this this false way of making us feel like we're superior to whoever it is that we're gossiping about. Or you will resort to overachieving in order to medicate the insecurity that you feel because you know deep down that you are not enough. And it's tiring. Any and all of this is is tiring. Any strategy that we use to scrub away the invisible blood will wear us out. So that's where we're stuck if the resurrection didn't happen. Our faith would be futile, and we would still be in our sins, but where are we with the resurrection? So, um, 
so Dr. Paul Lim, he, he preached last week. He's our scholar in residence. He's in California right now doing some guest speaking at a church on the West Coast. But he teaches at Vanderbilt University. That's his, his regular uh, full-time thing. And one of his former students is a woman named Tish Warren, who is a remarkable writer, and she, she just got a column with the New York Times as well. And right before Easter, she did a piece uh, about death, about the Christian view of death. And in that essay, she said, we feel that there must be more. I believe that there are good reasons to believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. And, and by the way, if you want to dive into some of those reasons, you can just listen to either of the two sermons or both of the two sermons from the last two Sundays because we, we talked about that in detail. But she says, I, I believe there are good reasons to believe it's true, but I also want it to be true. I want it to be true, she says. And here's Paul's answer to that in verse 19. But in fact, in fact, not in fiction, but in fact, not in theory, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So what is the meaning of these words, but in fact? It means a lot of things. But one of the things it means is that the life of Jesus, the newness, the resurrected life of Jesus will bring a certain death to his rivals, specifically the rivals of guilt, death, and decline. The resurrection of Jesus first means the death of guilt. You know, if you, you ever wonder what it, what it must be like for those people who seem to be able to live with bold honesty about their inadequacies, their inefficiencies, their not-enoughness, and still be emotionally free, and still have high self-esteem instead of low self-esteem. And in fact, it seems that a contributor to this high self-esteem is to, to be able to admit and own that you are not enough in yourself, this strange paradoxical combination which is echoed in, in James 5.16, where, 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 where the half-brother of Jesus writes, confess your sins and you will be healed. Confess your sins and you will be healed. We see this in King David. He's, he's exposed by the prophet Nathan for adultery, murder, the abuse of power, and his immediate response when he's exposed is, I have sinned. He doesn't say to Nathan, hey, don't tell anybody. Let's, let's, you, know, you need to cooperate with me on a cover-up or else I'm going I'm to finish you off if you know what I'm saying. Remember, I've got the power. Remember who's the boss. Remember who's in charge. Remember who, who pays you. Remember who you know, provides for you. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't make any excuses. He just says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then, then he publishes the 51st Psalm, which is his prayer of repentance. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your uh, unfailing love and your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquities, cleanse me from my sin. Without the resurrection, prayers like that are meaningless. They're empty. You know, Scripture is filled with tattletales. But they're not telling on each other. They're all telling on themselves. 
You know, Jonah, if you've ever read the four chapters of the prophet Jonah, he's, he's disobedient, he's resentful, he's entitled. Who wrote Jonah? Jonah wrote Jonah. Or, or Peter, where in one of his, his letters in the Bible, he says to, to Christians everywhere, you need to really dive into the letters of Paul because they are words from God. They are Scripture. And included in, in the letters of Paul is Galatians chapter 2, where it says that Paul opposes Peter to his face for public xenophobic behavior and, and racist behavior and exclusionary behavior and, 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 and putting on the outside people that Jesus has welcomed to the inside of the community. He says, even those parts of Scripture that where Paul calls me out, you need to embrace those. Or Paul himself. Romans chapter 7, he, he confesses publicly a private sin of envy, of coveting. You, know, you could go on and on. But these are all people who are willing to tell on themselves because they are emotionally free to do so, and they know that the pathway to healing involves confessing, confessing sin not only to God, but to other people. Because healing happens in community. God's made us to heal in community, not in isolation. And the other thing is that, that the, these same people, they treasure humility over ego. This is one sign of holiness, one sign you're growing to become more like Christ, one sign that the resurrection life of Jesus is in you, is that you find yourself more and more, not less and less, but more and more saying words like, I'm sorry and I was wrong, both to God and to people. And we know, I mean, Sting says it on and on, the rain will fall, how fragile we are, how fragile we are. We're terrified of the apology, at least on, on the giving end, we're terrified of it. But there's something about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that, that, that incites courage to humble ourselves and to value humility over saving face when we're the party in the wrong. What does it say in Romans 4.25? Jesus died for our sins, and he rose to life for our justification. Now, justification is a biblical theological word that basically means everything tarnished, everything contaminated, everything corrupt about us has been covered and clothed by the blamelessness and righteousness of Jesus Christ himself, which means that in Christ… We have nothing to hide, nothing to prove, and nothing to fear anymore. That's the functional, practical benefit of resurrection being true. So there's the death of guilt. There's also the death of death. So here, here are a few more words from Tish Warren. We feel there must be more. We must be made for more, more conversations, more laughter, more breaths to take, more miles to walk along the trail. I believe there are good reasons to believe it's true, but I also want it to be true. I hate death. I have never made my peace with death, and I never will. I don't want to live in a world where everything good suddenly ends. And, and again, the words here, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then it goes on to say, Christ being raised from the dead is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's like the first apple that, or, or pear or, 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 or you know, orange that, that, that shows up on the tree. 
at the beginning of the in-season season is a sign that there are going to be hundreds more. And here there's a sign that there's going to, Christ coming from the dead is the first fruits that there are going to be billions more. Scripture's promise is that we who believe in Christ will be like him because we will see him as he is. And, and here's the thing. If we're going to be like him in his resurrected state, that means that this, this shell of a body that we're living in right now, there are going to be a whole lot of upgrades. A lot of upgrades. You know, one thing that's true about the resurrected body of Christ is that, the, that he had no barriers. He walked through walls, the Gospels tell us. He had an agility where he could, he could go anywhere without having to travel there. Remember the, the old Star Trek shows, Beam Me Up, Scotty, and boom, you, 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 would, you would be beamed up immediately. You wouldn't have to get you know, in a car or in an airplane or in a spaceship. Jesus was able to do that with his body. We will be like him. Immunity to illness and to injury. Your revelation promises there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain for our resurrected bodies. And anybody ever dream of flying? What it would be like to be a bird? You ever envy the birds? You remember what Isaiah says? Those who hope in the Lord, those who wait on the Lord will mount up with wings like eagles. And, and it seems that he was actually speaking literally. If, if our bodies are going to be like Jesus' body, one of, the, first, one of the, the, the things he did after he rose from the dead was he ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Death of guilt, death of death, and finally the death of decline. You know, we all struggle with the aging process. We, we all struggle with the fact that, you know, this, this all comes to an end, it seems, right? We're getting more. If you're my age, you're, you're getting more tired. Your body isn't cooperating with you like it used to. Your brain isn't cooperating with you like it used to. But in Revelation 21, we see our resurrection future described by Jesus in this way, where Jesus says, I am making all things new. And the verb tense there is continual. It, it points to continual action as if Jesus is saying, I will continue to make all things new. Every day will be better than the one before it, and every person in glory will be smarter, faster, and stronger tomorrow than they were today every day for infinite days, moving from strength to strength. It's what uh, singer-songwriter Jeremy Casella, a friend of many of us in our community, calls death in reverse. Death in reverse. You know, Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great Presbyterian minister at Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church, was driving to his own wife's funeral with his two daughters in the car. And a huge truck passes by them coming the other way. And he says to his daughters, would you rather get hit by that truck or would you rather get hit by that truck's shadow? And they said, well, of course we'd rather get hit by the shadow, Dad. And Donald Gray Barnhouse says to his daughters, Jesus got hit by the truck so that Mom and you and me would only get hit by the shadow that is death. 
If you ever wonder why, if you ever wonder if Christians can really say she or he is in a better place, this is your answer. Jesus took the hit so that all you would have to do is pass through the shadow. And we don't like shadows. We don't like darkness. It's not a pleasant thing. But it won't crush you like it crushed Jesus. If Christ is not raised, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ has died for our sins and Christ has been risen for our justification. And now, Lord, we we approach this table, the Lord's table, where Jesus, in the form of bread and a cup, appears to us physically, not just showing us his body and his blood, but inviting us to receive his body and blood into our own bodies so that we can live at one with him and so that we can be strengthened in these promises that we have, that because Christ is risen, it means that the cross matters, and it means that our faith is not futile, and it means that we are not in our sins, and it means that guilt and shame and death are only shadows because Jesus got hit by the truck. He stood in our place. He stood in our way so that the truck could not do damage to us. Father, teach us to live in hope in light of these wonderful, sometimes hard to believe, but no less real and no less true realities. For this we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.